2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So there is an obscure figure in Genesis chapter 10 named Nimrod. So if you're looking for baby names, there's my suggestion. So not much is said about him, but what is mentioned is rather curious. It says this, it says, He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So Nimrod becomes sort of the first folk hero, superhero, the first celebrity, if you will. And so, in fact, Nimrod gets his own catchphrase. And so because he was a mighty hunter, because his reputation was so great, it says this about him. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's like the first meme. And so when uh, somebody would do something fabulous or strong, if they'd come back to bring a big cow or ox, and the wife would be like, oh, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Or in the ancient whatever sport that they would play, they'd praise their children, ah, that man is like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So wives, I suggest you try that on your husband this week when he does something grand and glorious. If he brings back a deer this season, ah, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So Nimrod is one of, like the, the, one of the first celebrities, one of the first heroes of their day. He was famous, famous for being a mighty hunter. And what his brief appearance in the genealogy in Genesis 10 teaches us is that fame and notoriety and popularity have been around since humanity's early history. People have always wanted to be admired or recognized. There's always been this longing and lure of popularity to be cool or famous or hip or rad. Whatever decade you want to put in there, we have our own catchphrase for. We always want to be the mighty men. Starting about 10 to 12 years ago, there were many studies that were done between, with teens and tweens, so people between the ages of 10 and 15. The main questions that were asked is what they wanted out of life. And the majority of those who responded put being famous as one of their top five goals in life. And often that desire to be famous or popular outranked successful careers, starting a family or community involvement. In one recent poll, the top answer to the question, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? The top answer was YouTube star. That answer was three times more popular than being an astronaut. The desire for teenagers and young adults and, yes, older adults have not waned in the past few years, it has only increased from reality TV shows or talent shows or talent-less shows, depending on which version you watch. This rise of Instagram influencers or YouTube stars or TikTok celebrities. Anybody can be famous if they can keep your attention for 14.2 seconds. And usually being famous comes with doing something stupid. The pursuit and fame of fame and popularity are not limited to the internet, but it certainly enhanced it over the years. We're surrounded by a society that's enamored with cultivating, projecting, and drawing attention to your own personal brand. We live in a culture that is obsessed with glory. But we usually don't use that word glory. We use reputation or recognition, or admiration, or attention, or fame, or popularity, or honor, but it all comes back to the premise of glory, the weight 
of glory. And we're all living to promote someone or something's glory, to enhance, to worship, to honor, to praise the glory of someone or something or some football team. We're often focused on self-glory, the promotion of our own lives and our own personal fame. That's why we have this rise and this desire to be famous as the life goal of a teenager. And we'll organize our lifestyle, our habits, our conversations, our posts, all in this desire to seek glory for ourselves. How many likes or hearts or thumbs up or high fives that we can get. And self-glory can manifest itself online or in the workplace or in the neighborhood or even in ministry. So this morning, I want us to consider whose glory are you living for? Whose fame and reputation and honor are you devoting your life to? How does your lifestyle fit that pursuit? What habits and resolutions are you making to achieve those goals, to bring that glory? In our text today, we'll see Paul pray against the tendency towards self-glory. And he will pray for the church to live and promote and glorify Christ in their character and in their conduct. And he'll do this as a prayer report. And so in, at the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he will give a praise report. But before we get there, let's go back and let's read the, most of the chapter. So we're actually going to start our reading in verse 3. And I don't think the words are on the screen until verse 11. So if you're reading along in your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Verse 11, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the end of this chapter, Paul will sum up everything that he's been talking about. He is praying or telling the church that he has been praying for them. That's why we have this phrase, to this end, at the very beginning of verse 11. The NIV will say that with this in mind, that church, you've been going through persecution. You are suffering. You're enduring tremendous affliction because you are following Jesus. 
And because of that, I'm going to pray for you and have been praying for you, says Paul. And he says that I've been doing this always, constantly, just like he's been giving thanks to God. He's praying to God for them. They are facing tremendous hostility and affliction and persecution. Yet, in verse 3 and verse 4, we see that their faith is growing abundantly. Their love is increasing. They're becoming more steadfast despite their trials. And Paul will pray for them to continue in their faith and their love and their steadfastness. But what is he praying for? Yes, he's praying in this context. What is he praying for? And he tells us in verse 12. The end of verse 12 says this. The goal that I'm praying for is that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So we see the goal of Paul's prayer is the glorification of Jesus Christ. And so the goal for the church in Thessalonica, the aim and ambition for the church here in Lookout Valley, it's not for self-glory, it's not for self-promotion, it's not for self-gratification. We live for the glory of Christ. We exist not to make the name of a church great or the name of some pastor or some preacher famous. Our ambition, our aim, our goal is for Christ to be glorified by us, among us, and in us. It's really strange that he mentions that the glory will be shown in God's people. We understand that the glory of Christ will be proclaimed by God's people, or like even nature will, de- will declare the glory of God. The saints will declare how God is worthy. But he's talking about the glory is to be in the church. He's not selling for some external declaration or proclamation, which those things are proper and true, but it's more than that. He's driving here that Christ would be honored, praised, and magnified in the character and conduct of God's people in the church, that the glory of God would not just be affirmed by the people's lips, but exemplified in their nature, behavior, and action. And notice that all of these words are plural, that God's glory would be in us, in y'all. It's in the church, in the body of Christians, not just in individuals, but by the church, the people coming together to be the dwelling place of God, that God would be glorified and magnified in their assembly, in their life together. And Paul is petitioning, he's asking, he's pleading for God that his name, his reputation, his honor would be glorified by the conduct and character of the people as they live with perseverance in this anti-God anti-Christian society. And so how does God, how does Christ get this glory? We see the goal is the glorification of Christ, but there's two means, two ways that God will get glory. And we'll back up to verse 11. We see the first means, the first way that God gets glory is that we have a life of godly worth. So the means that Christ gets glory is the way his people conduct their lives here. He says this, that, that God, he's praying that God would make you worthy of his calling. Well, what is his calling? What does he mean by that? Does God just like get on the phone and say, hey, I need you to live a life worthy of me. Bye. Quick. No. Calling. It's the effectual call for salvation. It's a call from death to life. 
a call out of darkness into light. It's a call to become to go from the enemies of God to the children of God. It's God's call of his people. And this command to live worthy is for Christians only. If you are not called, if you have not responded, you cannot live worthy of Christ. Because the first step to live worthy of Christ is to repent of your sin and believe on him. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you have not responded to this call, all the other things in this message won't make any sense. And so the appeal here is for you to walk worthy of God, to forsake your sin and to cling to Christ, to believe and trust in Him. That's how we start to live worthy. But fleshing this out, what does it mean to live worthy? What it doesn't mean is that we deserve or merit this worthiness as we got to earn God's call. If I'm good enough, if I do enough, if I check all these boxes, if I keep this list, then I earn His calling. It's not that. The meaning here is to act proper, fitting, appropriate to the calling that you already have. Parents, you know this when you go out in public and say, don't embarrass me to your kid. Because, hey, they represent you. Because you know, when you volunteer in the nursery and you see those, those children in the nursery, and you're like, yep, I see how their parents treat them and they treat their parents, you know. And so we have this idea that we are called to live worthy as being a child of God. In verse 5, he will say that we are to be worthy of the kingdom of God. That we would live as examples and citizens of the heavenly kingdom because we are heirs of that. We're heirs of the king. And we see this exemplified in many places, but especially in cinematic classics like The Princess Diaries, where a pauper is suddenly thrust into royalty. We see uh, it, this happen in the 1980s classic, Big, where a boy wishes to be grown up, and he suddenly, the next morning, is a, a full-grown man. He's got to live like a full-grown man. Or Eliza Doolittle going to the assembly ball. It's Harry Potter thrust into the wizarding world. It's Tarzan coming from the jungle into society and civilization. Those characters can't live in their old way of life. They have to change and adapt and learn to live proper, to speak proper, to uh, form their habits, their behavior, their speech to something that is appropriate to which they have been called. We as Christians, are called not to live for the kingdom of this world, but for the kingdom of Christ, to live appropriately. And this happens in many ways, but it happens, first of all, in the abandonment of self. It's leaving self-reliance, leaving self-righteousness, leaving self-glory behind. It's renunciation of all pride and a complete dependence on Christ and His life and His death. It's a clinging to Christ in everything. It's leaving our pursuit of our goals, our glory, our purposes to pursue His. And we see this because we just sang this. Letting go of my pride, giving up of my rights. Take this life and let it shine. I lay me down. I am not my own. I belong to you alone. This is the idea to live worthy. We don't pursue us. We don't pursue our fame, our glory, our purposes, but we go after God. We cut ties with the things of this world. We have a mind devoted to spiritual things. We're committed to kill all sin in our lives. 
or committed to keep the commandments of Christ. It's a devotion to holiness, to righteousness in our speech, to speak with kindness and not malice, with building up, not tearing down. It's working with integrity in our businesses. It's purity in our sexual lives. It's thanksgiving and not covetousness. In short, it's following after the pattern of Jesus himself. How do we walk worthy? We figure out how Jesus walked. We live as he lived. We love as he loved. We serve as he served. We die as he died. This is the call to live worthy. And this is a, not just a difficult task. This is an impossible task. That's why Paul prays for God to make us worthy. So in the finished work of Christ, we do not have to earn or work out our worthiness. He's already called us. In Christ's work, his perfect life of obedience, his sacrificial death of atonement, and his triumphal resurrection in victory, he's already qualified us, already justified us, already called us into this new life. He's done the work for us. The good news of the gospel tells us that Christ's work on our behalf gives us new life through the new birth because the Spirit works in us. What Jesus has already done is sufficient. We rest in that work. Yet, God calls us and commands us to continue living a worthy life. We're commanded to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. We see this in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11-12, he says this. He says, Like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So it's the same language here in the first letter as it is in the second letter. So in the first letter, he's commanding and urging and encouraging the people to walk worthy. But in the second letter, he's saying that God, he prays that God would make them worthy. So we have to hold this healthy tension between these two things. That God is sovereign, that He is working, that He is calling, but also our desire, our command, our instruction to keep walking worthy. We can't have one without the other. And so we see that God has called us, that He has justified us, that He is sanctifying us, and He will glorify us. But in the middle of that process, we have work to do. We come alongside the Spirit as He works in us that we work out the sanctification. As we live this way, as we live a life that is worthy of God, Christ receives glory. How? When we turn from sin and we obey Christ, God is honored as holy. When we follow God with our lives, others will see that. If we serve them, they will thank God for those things, and God gets praise and glory. When we persevere in faith amid persecution, amid suffering, Jesus will be glorified because he is seen as worthwhile, as beautiful, and as good. So we are called and commanded to live lives that are worthy of our calling. So that's our first means, that we have a a life that is worth our calling. Second, the second means is that we have a resolve for good works. That we are resolved for good works. So part of living a worthy life, a fitting Christian life, is to to pursue good works. 
the second half of verse 11. Again, Paul's praying that our God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. So here, Paul is talking about our inward disposition, our determination to do good things, to serve God and to serve other people. When he talks about resolve, he's talking about this inward desire, this purpose, this pleasure to doing what is right and good. Every resolve is the internal motivation to live a godly life. And every work of faith is the external manifestation of that resolve. So I'm determined to do something good, and I follow through and do it. So in in the Christian life, there must be, there should be, there ought to be this inward pull, this desire to do good rather than delight in evil. There's a maturing process in the Christian that as we grow closer to Christ, we will go farther away from the things of this world. We will say yes to good things and no to evil and wicked things. We will say yes to the best things and no to the worst things. And we're progressively choosing and desiring and delighting to obey Christ and to serve others. And so when the new year comes around or when your birthday comes around, you're looking for that New Year's resolution... Uh, You can throw out the gym membership and commit yourself, resolve yourself, make a resolution to do good, to live worthy. So Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great uh, American theologian in the 1700s, he made 70 resolutions that he looked over time and time again. And they were resolutions that he committed himself to to pursue God and to pursue his glory and the good of others. Here's just a sample His first resolution, Jonathan Edwards says this, I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure for as long as I live. I will do all these things without any consideration of the time they take. So notice he's committing to do do good for God's glory and his own personal benefit. These are not separate. These are both together. He'll go on and say this. He says, I am resolved never to lose one moment of time, but seize the time to use it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolve never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And he goes on for 67 more of these resolutions that he focused himself on pursuing God and his glory. So what are some resolutions? What are some works of faith that we can do? And again, there's an internal motivation and an external expression. So if you have an internal desire to want to know God more, if it is your desire, your resolve to know Him better, your commitment is to read the Bible, to pray, to assemble together with the saints. Or if you want to trust God more with your finances, if your inward resolution is to trust Him more, then the outward action is to give sacrificially. If you have an inward desire to share Christ with your neighbor, well, the external uh, manifestation is to go and talk to them, to share the gospel. If you have a desire to love others, to serve others, then get out and go visit the nursing home, or to rake your neighbor's yard, or to go across the church and talk to that person that you can't stand, to serve others. Paul will tell us that we are created for these good works, that we're zealous for these good works that we're devoted to good works. So if you claim to be a Christian and there is no desire, if there's no resolution for these good things, 
But I encourage you to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not. Because the people of God will be resolved for good things. And what's the result of these good works? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God is glorified when we serve others, when we pursue good, because people will see what we do and not glorify you, but glorify the God who's motivating you. And so we see this application here that we are to live worthy lives to pursue good works. But let's press in just for a moment with a little bit more application. And we'll see this application in Ephesians chapter 4. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul will use the same exact language. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What's a worthy life look like here? What's a resolve for good here? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, pursuing unity and peace. If we look out to see Christians today, online and in person, I don't know if we see these things. Because everywhere I look, constantly I see, instead of kindness, there's malice. Instead of patience, there's anger. Instead of humility, there's bravado. Instead of unity, there's division. Those things, malice and bravado and division and anger, are not worthy of our call as people of Christ. It's not glorifying Christ. It's not honoring Christ. It brings shame to Christ. Because we see Christians going after other people, attacking their character, threatening personal safety. If you don't like what I do, I'm going to malign you. I'm going to shame you. I'm going to throw tomatoes at your door. And if we think about our cultural moment, we can have opinions about all sorts of things and all sorts of subjects. But unless the Bible specifically and strictly reveals what is true, then most of the time, all the time outside of that clear revelation, our opinions have a mixture of truth and falsehood. Our motivations are all washed up with some good and bad motivations. And I'm not concerned what your opinion is about certain things. Because I know as soon as I bring something up, you're going to start riling up on one side or the other. But I'm concerned about how we conduct ourselves in these things. And we can have disagreements on all sorts of things. And I've had conversations in the past year over with Christians who don't believe the Trinity or who don't support the sanctity of human life. Those things are worth going to battle for. But I still go into that conversation with humility, with grace, with with patience, with kindness. Even though I know, standing on the Bible, I am right. But it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. As, Timothy, as Paul told Timothy, that we correct our opponents with gentleness. And so we have these incredibly important and biblically clear things. Then we have the downright and stupid conversations, like who's the greatest boy band of the 1990s? Or is cheerleading a sport? I've had, I've had friends who've broken friendships over these things. And those are stupid. 
But there's a whole lot of issues between those two extremes. From politicians to policies to mandates to regulations to race relations to immigration, the list goes on. But again, it doesn't matter where you land on the issue side, A, B, C, or Q. You can have a number of opinions, and I'm not saying you just roll over on those opinions or capitulate or simply change your mind because someone stands against you. You can keep those beliefs if you are convinced in your own mind. But are we resolved in our hearts and our minds to love others who don't agree with us, to act with humility, to be patient, waiting on the Lord, to walk in gentleness and meekness, to commit ourselves to the Lord, to sit down and have a conversation that's filled with grace, civility, and kindness, to do whatever is in me to live at peace with other people, to find the good in others, to listen, to be willing to change your mind if you come up against the error in your thinking. Because again, we all have this mix of truth and error in us. That's humility. And when we live as a church in these ways, despite our differences, despite our disagreements, when we commit to living the fruit of the Spirit in kindness, humility, patience, love, peace, God gets glory in those things. Because the world is going to say, hey, those people, they don't look alike. They don't drive the same kind of car. They don't vote the same way. They don't agree on the same things. But you know what? Those people get along with each other. They love each other. They tolerate each other. That's when God gets glory in his people. When they walk in disagreement, but they walk in unity. So are we resolved to walk in these ways? Do we desire to mimic Jesus in these ways? Is our purpose and good pleasure to forsake bringing glory to ourselves or to promote our own position and to bring glory to Christ? to put aside our rights, to put aside our self and our glory for His. These are impossible things. That's why Paul prays for this to happen, for these good works, for this life of worthiness to come up. And so in our passage in 2 Thessalonians, he will give us four quick encouragements on how to walk this way. And so... These things are impossible unless we keep these things in mind. What keeps us going? What pushes us to walk a life that is worthy? What, pers- what pushes us to pursue goodness? Four things. First, we see the future work of God's justice. And we looked at this the past couple weeks. We can keep going. We can live lives that are worthy of the kingdom because we know that God will come and set his kingdom up in justice. That we are are challenged to live holy and righteous lives right now as the world becomes more secularized, more antagonistic toward us, as the persecution, as the pressure mounts. That should give us more motivation, Paul says, to keep going because we know that Christ, when he comes again, will set all things right. That he will repay with affliction, in verse 6. He will repay with affliction those who afflict you, and he will grant relief to you who are afflicted. So God's justice comes here, Paul says, to right the wrongs, to put everything right side up again. He's going to repay with vengeance and affliction. He's going to grant relief. He's going to bring justice to this world. And if you missed last week's message, 
Troy really pressed into this idea that God will repay with affliction those who afflict his people. God's justice will be meted out. When Christ returns, he will usher in his kingdom, and when he does, he will defeat his enemies. But at the same time, as he defeats his enemies, he will glorify his own people. He will bring relief to his people. And we see this relief in verse 10. So again, he he says this, when Christ comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So how are we motivated to keep living holy lives? How are we motivated and pushed on to keep living worthy? Well, Paul says that, hey, remember, this life is not all you get. There's more to come. Keep going. Look ahead. Because when Christ will return, we will behold him in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. We will wonder at his beauty and be in awe of his power. We'll fall down before his majesty. We will look and gaze on the scars that he bore for us. We rejoice with joy inexpressible. We will tremble at the wonder of the Lamb who was dead and is now made alive. We will marvel at the King of kings. We will worship the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus forever and ever. And Paul says, this is what you're looking forward to, church. The kingdom will come and God's justice will reign and Christ will come and you will see him. You will marvel at him. You will see him as awesome and glorified. And this final revelation motivates us and gives us courage to keep going. This is where we are going. And we pursue holiness because without holiness, we don't see the Lord. And Paul says, if you want to see Jesus, you better walk holy, not just then, but now. So the reward includes beholding the glory of Christ, encouraging us to receive the reward. But not only that, he's saying, yes, the future work, God will come in justice and you will see Christ, but even more than that, we see the future glory of God's own people. And this scene, when Christ comes, when the saints glorify and marvel at Christ, includes you, church, includes you, Christian. It includes all of us. So this is your blessed hope that Christ will come again and we will see him and behold him and marvel him. But not just that. Not only will we see his glory, we get to experience for ourselves. So if you want to seek your own glory, well, you don't do it on TikTok. You do it by pursuing Christ. Because when he's glorified, he will glorify us. Verse 12 says, Not only will Christ be glorified in you and you in him. Christ's glory overflows from his person to his people. John puts it this way in his first letter. He says, Beloved, we are now God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this to that church. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. So you can see that John and Paul and Peter and others will say when Christ comes, when he's revealed in his glory, that glory will radiate out from him and be put into his people. You will be glorified along with Christ. You will reflect that glory. And when we get there, we will be fully, completely, perfectly, permanently glorified. No more sin, no more shame. 
and we see him as he is. But the glory of Christ that, that he will receive in that day, in the future, is summed up in how we live even now. How we live now is a preview of how he will be glorified on that day. The glory that we bring to him now is but a pinprick in the night sky that will be magnified in the full sunlight of his glory. And so we see the glory of Christ radiating among us, even in a shadow. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so as we pursue a holy life, now it prepares us for that day in the future. And so if we don't have any resolve, if we have no desire to go after holiness, to work in faith, to do good right now, then we aren't ready for the day of the Lord. J.C. Ryle, at the end of the 19th century, he was an Anglican uh, bishop in uh, Birmingham or Manchester. Where was he, Tracy? Somewhere in, in one of those English towns over there. But Ryle, in his uh, book Holiness, puts it this way. He says, Most men hope to go to heaven when they die. But few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its habitations are all holy. Its occupants are all holy. To really be happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while here on earth. If you want to enjoy heaven, we'll start practicing now. John Owen, about a, a 200 years before Ryle, John Owen, the great Puritan, said this, Holiness indeed is perfected in heaven, but the beginning of it is invariably confined to this world. This is a challenging thought, that if we want to be ready for heaven, we need to start pursuing holiness now. This is the motivation, Christian, to do good things, to do good works, to live a life that is worthy, because what we do now prepares us for that day. We look ahead. So, are we living a holy life? Are we living a worthy life? Are we resolved for good right now? So we look into the future when Christ will come and his glory is manifested before us and in us. But we also keep going with the present work of God's power. That's the third encouragement. That Paul says that the present work of God's power is in you. Verse 11, that we are doing this by his power. And remember, Paul's praying for the Almighty God to work in his people, to not leave us alone. God doesn't save us and then kind of like pat us on the back and say, hey, good luck with the rest of your life. We'll see you in heaven. No, God's walking along, empowering us right now. And we hear that word power, and we kind of think, oh, it's a little pipsqueak of a bottle rocket motor. You know, it, it fires off, poof. No, this is a, a space shuttle engine. This is a F-1 rocket motor sending our Saturn rocket 5 to the moon. It's the greatest power on the planet. The power that spoke the sun into existence, well, it's the same power that illuminates our hearts and minds. Or the power that split the Red Sea, well, it's the same power that delivers us from sinful bondage. That power that made the sun stand still, well, it's the power that works in us for good. That power that raised Christ from the dead, well, it's the same power that breathes life in you today. The same powers that work in you right now. And Paul's encouraging with those three simple words, by his power. 
And so if you today are worried that you aren't living a life that's worthy enough or good enough, if your resolve isn't strong enough, if your works of faith are inadequate, remember that Jesus is kind, that he is gentle, that he is lowly. The weakest desires and smallest resolves he will empower. A bruised reed he does not break, a crushed spirit he does not trample on. So you who may have a weak and timid faith or a small resolve, cling to Christ and let him show you his power to walk in this way. And these small acts of faith prove to be a life that's worthy of God's calling. Cling to Christ. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. We do it and trust We obey in God's power, but lastly, we see the application of God's ever-present grace. The last motivation comes at the end of his sentence, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because none of us deserve any of this. None of us us are worthy to be called. It's all an act of grace. None of us deserve to be here. But God grants us this because of his love, his mercy, and his grace. And it's an ever-present application from the day we were born to the day we die, and he glorifies us. Everything is by God's grace. So by his power, yes, but his grace overshadows everything. So do you need to repent and trust in Christ's forgiveness for the first time? Well, plead for his grace. Do you turn to that same old besetting sin all the time? Then hunger for his grace. Do you desire to glorify and know God more? Then hunger for his grace. Do you find your resolutions small and weak? Then cling to his grace. Are you walking in obedience? Then rejoice in his grace. Do you see others served and and, and edified in your efforts? Then revel in his grace. Everything that we do is by his grace, through his power. So the grace that flows from the first day that we called on his name, the grace that works in us in this day, will push us on and burst in abundance on that day when he comes again, when we marvel at him and we are glorified in his presence. So whose glory are we living for? Is it for our own? Is it for the glory of something or someone or some church or some company? Or our deepest resolves and our desires, they betray who we worship and glorify. Our conduct and action expose who we serve and magnify. So if we're pursuing our own personal fame and popularity and the fortunes that come with that, I hate to break it to you that all those things fade away. Think about 100 years ago. In 1921, who were the most popular entertainers or sports figures of those days? Who became president in 1921? We don't know. You may know a trivia fact here or there. It was Warren Harding, by the way, became president. And I don't know anything that he did other than tank the country, according to Wikipedia. But those people in 1921, they were dead. And we don't know who they were. I looked up the most popular entertainers of 1921, and none of them made any sense to me. You know, fame, celebrity, they go away. Social media platforms were falter. They go offline. Shocker. They're going to be replaced by something next year because I know all of you uh, millennials uh, because you personalized your background and theme song on your MySpace page. Good luck trying to find that anymore. 
All of you who signed up for Friendster in 2002, I know you had a Friendster account. Um, those social medias are gone. Things are going to be replaced next year or next week. And then what happens to all your created selfies then? They diminish. They fail. They disappear. So too often we craft our habits, our lives, our desires to be worthy of something of social stature or popular acclaim. But Christian, our conduct, our character are worth so much more. We are to live for God's glory revealed in us as we glorify Christ. So let's live appropriately, pursuing holiness and Christlikeness. Let's be spiritually minded, pursuing good and faithfulness. Let's work and serve others, pursuing love and selflessness. And above all, let's pursue the fame and glory of Christ, no matter where we are and what we do. Let his glory be seen in and among us as we glorify him. Let's pray.